RugbyRenegade.com, the number one online strength and conditioning program for rugby. Are you ready to get bigger, stronger, fitter, and faster and dominate your opposition? Welcome to the Rugby Renegade Podcast, where we build machines. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Rugby Renegade podcast. My name's Jamie Bain and today I interview Chris Toombs, Head of Strength and Conditioning at North Hants Cricket. Uh, Chris is a great guy, really open and shares so much information. I think it's a really good one if you're, if you're a wannabe strength and conditioning coach. Um, loads of really good um, insights into his philosophy and um, uh, lessons that he's learned over his nearly 20 year career in strength and conditioning in professional sport uh, and on the rugby side he, although he works in cricket now he's spent a lot of time in rugby he's worked at Leicester Tigers for a number of years and then Cardiff Blues for a long period of time and had a, won a few trophies when he was there um, and then worked over in the States with rugby and other sports so seriously good podcast loads of good information so have a listen and let us know what you think Hi Chris welcome to the Rugby Renegade podcast it's great to have you on Pleasure to be on. Thanks very much for the invite. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Why don't we start by um, you sort of telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your background, how you got into strength and conditioning and, and some of the clubs, uh, so certainly rugby clubs you work with. I know you work with other sports. Just sort of allude to that a bit. Yeah, no, brilliant. Well, um, yeah, to cut the long story short, been involved in strength and conditioning nearly, uh, nearly 20 years. Um, started my first real kind of rugby um, S&C with, the English Institute of Sport when it was kind of more of a consultancy-based operation. I worked with some of the England women's rugby players in um, the early 2000s and from there ended up being lucky enough to get an interview with uh, Leicester Tigers and pretty much within a transitional period of time when uh, the Tigers were doing some quite cool stuff and England were winning the World Cup, um, ended up working across the academy and the first team um, only for two seasons before I made the uh, made the transition over to the Cardiff Blues where I spent nine seasons um, pretty much a quite evolving role which included um, initially working predominantly with the academy age grade players and then um, a sort of fully fledged senior role for the last four or five years of my career there um, decided to take a big big jump across the pond to the United States um, ended up working for a commercial business that was pretty much tasked with growing rugby in North America for two years and within that role was lucky enough to do some consultancy with USA national team and prepare individual athletes for the Rio games and I was really lucky to obviously have involvement with one player particularly who ended up going to Rio on the women's program which was very very cool and um, yeah for various um, for various other reasons uh, made the jump back across the pond to Northamptonshire County Cricket Club, which is where I'm currently at, and uh, yeah, had a successful year there, winning the national T20 competition during the summer. I yeah. think that's the uh, the very short version of uh, 16 years in professional uh, sport. <laughs> yeah, well, congratulations on winning the trophy, and I, I believe you had a couple of trophies at the Blues as well when you were there. Yeah, so um, yeah, had some good times there. Really, really, um, you know, quite special memories winning the EDF Cup. Sorry, I know you work for. Um, Gloucester, um, beating beating Gloucester at Twickenham was a career highlight with some really really good players at the at the time 2008-9 or 2009-10 I'm not sure, and then yeah Amlin Cup in 2010, beating Toulon out in Marseille was a pretty special memory as well and you know from that point on really the Blues you know some really really world class players and 
and some young Welsh talent that's you know subsequently developed into you know current you know captain of of Wales and the Lions and you know the likes of Jamie Roberts, Lee Halfpenny, Bradley Davis, some pretty some pretty stellar names now on the sort of Welsh team sheet came through the sort of blues system. And there was a kind of spine of really, really high quality sort of overseas players at the time. And most of them coming from New Zealand and uh, a couple of Tongans who really sort of were the, were the backbone of a quite a successful time, uh, quite a successful time for the, for the Blues at that point. Yeah, for sure. And something I've got to ask is, um, you just remind me talking about some of your, your successes there. Were you there during the, I think it was Heineken Cup uh, against Leicester when it went to uh, like a drop goal shootout? Yes, I was. The tears and the agony of um, yeah, watching a, a rugby penalty shootout in the semi-finals of Heineken Cup 2009-10 yeah. or 2008-9. Sorry, yeah, um, unbelievable experience at that point. I think um, if my memory serves me correctly, Leicester Tigers dominated the game. I think we were 26-12 down with six minutes to go, and I think Jamie Roberts and Tom James both scored length of the field tries and Ben Blair nailed two sideline conversions in the last five minutes of the game to draw. Extra time was agonising and then, yeah, the penalty shootout was just yeah. brutal. And, uh, yeah, 50-odd thousand in the Millennium Stadium watching Cardiff Blues was, was surreal. And, yeah, it's uh, bittersweet because, obviously, the Tigers was my old team and I think, genuinely think that at the, at the time, I think if the Leicester Tigers, uh, sorry, if the Blues had won that game, I think it was just at the start of the Leinster sort of ascendancy in Europe. I genuinely think the Blues would have beaten Leinster in the Heineken Cup final, but yeah. that's the margins in sport. I think you know the hero and the villain, Martin Williams, is like a, a rock star and obviously yeah. a superb player for Wales and for the Lions, uh, for the Lions and for for um, for the Blues. Missed one in front of goal, and I think even the goal kicker said that the pressure for that particular sort of shootout was absolutely horrific. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was there, mate. I was there that whole, you know. Yeah, I, I was there in the crowd. Light. I remember it very well. Really? But I imagine it, you would have been even more tense. Oh. <laughs> no, no, I've got. A, I have actually, funnily enough, I was looking through some archive footage recently to do a, a presentation on a PowerPoint, and uh, there's a photo of me. I don't know who captured it. There's literally the minute that um, Martin misses the kick and he's basically put his shirt to his face, and there's me in the background, and obviously I'm not putting the best face. But um, yeah, funnily enough, I found that. So yeah, thanks for reminding me, Jamie. Appreciate it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Let's move no on from that quickly. Uh, let's uh, obviously you said your time over in the states. Um, you know, we'll, we'll avoid the current political climate. But what was what was it like over there, and, and what have you learned that you've taken with you in your career? Oh, I think it was a fabulous experience from my from my own uh, you know personal and professional um, career wise. I think the the reality is that. I think a lot of people think it's, um, you know, the real next growth marketplace for, for rugby particularly. And there's a huge amount of interest in, in the sport, particularly the, the the shorter version of the game. The sevens format, I think, is something that's going to suit American marketplaces, particularly more so than possibly the, the 15th game. But um, the irony is, as I was leaving to come back to the UK, um, the rugby, um, I think Pro Rugby USA got formed in the six pro teams now in the, in the country. But... Um, yeah, I think there's just there's just this massive opportunity for for growing a sport that's you know physical domination is required. Um, you know, obviously that confrontational element that is going to try and come come up against um, the juggernaut that is um, American football, and that goes through kind of the cultural um, 
I guess, layers of, of American sports, high school, college, and obviously the pro sport is a, it's just a huge, huge business in America. And I think unless you've been there to enjoy and, ex- and get exposed to that, I don't think people in, in the kind of the UK or Europe or even in sort of Australia or New Zealand really see American football is just absolutely enormous. And I think the lessons learned from my point of view were the kind of um, crossover opportunities that may present themselves going forward in um, in the American marketplace. A lot of American football teams are starting to look at rugby to, to learn off. And I think potentially on the flip side of that, a lot of rugby teams could probably learn some lessons from American football mm-hmm. in terms of the way sort of businesses are organized possibly. But um, I was very, very fortunate that I've got a, a kind of long-standing um, professional kind of colleague who works at the Seattle Seahawks, who for those who and listening who don't know much about American football, they're, they're probably a top five franchise in, in the American uh, National Football League. And just getting exposed to sort of that environment and how fabulous their facilities are and the sort of the largest scale kind of operation that works within a within an American football franchise is quite fascinating for me. And I really enjoyed the interaction there. And, you know, the company that I work for has just started to do some sort of tackle analysis for American football to try and help them be more efficient and more effective when it comes to the sort of contact area. So I think it's um it's an interesting marketplace, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I, I've I've heard similar sort of things as yourself that they're getting rugby union defence coaches in over to American football teams to you know look at the way uh, you know we tackle as well. So it's it's definitely a two way street, and uh, yeah, they, they do really seem to be getting getting involved in the sevens game, uh, which is great. Um, so talking of you mentioned American football and what we can learn from it and obviously you're working in cricket at the moment what what can rugby union learn from from other sports in your opinion um, I just think it's um, it's having that open-minded sort of attitude to try and um, take the best from from other environments and you know you can integrate certain practices into into a team structure and I think one of the things um, that's apparent from both from both sports I mean the cultural kind of differences and the and the physical differences between cricket and, and rugby are obviously pretty pronounced, but the reality of kind of team dynamics and, you know, the older I've got and the more experienced I've got when it comes to the sort of X's and O's of, of strength and conditioning, I think those are the things that even in sort of popular social media um, posts that are currently kind of being exposed on, on Twitter and on those kind of, you know, media outlets. I think the reality is that it's... Um, it's those soft skills that are going to be more important. It's that team culture that kind of the legacy book and the all blacks that keeps kind of being relayed as like really, really important, um, important. And I think the other reality of kind of the current marketplace from a performance oriented standpoint is technology and its integration is something that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think the kind of modern day strength and conditioning coach um, across every sport has got to integrate you know, monitoring, it's got to integrate the sports science elements that are going to give you that performance advantage. And I think that is where the kind of, um, definitely the sort of American football uh, organisations are going to possibly in the near future steal a march because they've just got the resources to to sort of play around with, you know, good levels of technology and, and integrate them as successfully as possible. But I think it still all boils back down to you know, interpersonal relationships and the coach-athlete interface and, and how those kind of concepts, well, it's not a concept, but how that that sort of organisational structure allows for sort of peak performance with kind of basically 
honest, transparent communication from, you know, coaches and players. Yeah, definitely. I th- I think Sorry. That... Hopefully that wasn't too long-winded. No, no, no. I, I, th- I think you're right. We were talking about it at, at Gloucester the other day, how, you, how the, the industry kind of swings in and out of or things swing in and out of sort of favor and you know the more and more technology comes in and it's it's all very important and people kind of over adopt it uh, for want of a better term um and then after a while they realize how to use it better more efficiently um and in some ways people go the opposite way and don't use it at all but then it comes back to you know using it the best way but the things you're, you're exactly right the things that will never change are, are having that you know ability to communicate with coaches and players and and understand exactly what you're doing um so definitely some good points now kind of leading in nicely to always on the podcast we try and get a little bit of an insight into a, an SC coach's philosophy and that's quite a it's quite a broad uh, thing to talk about so um, why don't we sort of say what what are kind of the big rocks um, of your your S and C philosophy? Yeah, no, I think it's um, like you say. There's there's many ways to skin a cat, and I think the industry is polarised in some respects with regards to different attitudes and different people's kind of um, opinions. I'm guessing on uh, on that, but I think anyone who's followed me on social media for a fair few years since my uh, first few tweets, I think my uh, I've caught, not that I've coined it, but it seems to have coined, uh, coined the term strength foundation. And, you know, my overall philosophy, I guess, is is bound by that. And the realities of, you know, strength are not necessarily, just to qualify, not necessarily max strength being the sort of foundational underpinning physical quality that really impacts on, on all the others when it comes to, especially being um, successful in a confrontational sport like rugby. And I just, a lot of people get mixed up that they just think I'm a, kind of washed up old meathead who just loves bashing out max strength but the reality is we both know that there's you know lots of different um you know strength qualities along the the force velocity curve and you know you've got your speed strength you've got your strength speed you've got your max strength and it's blending all of those you know for the most part to get to get the most out of physical development of uh, of an athlete and you know within within that kind of conjuncture you've also got you know, I obviously realise that, you know, the speed stimulus is really important and I think, you know, people are kind of swinging one way with the the kind of Franz Bosch-inspired kind of strength training model. Um, you've obviously got the model where, you know, you've got to sprint to ex- expose guys from a um, resiliency and a robustness kind of perspective. If you don't sprint and then you expect them to sprint in, in match situations, you're obviously going to ask for trouble and you've got the, you know, you've got the kind of hamstring protectionist group and you've got, you know the industry is polarised with lots and lots of different philosophies, but I think the um, the reality for me over my kind of tenure as a strength and conditioning coach is that you know that's my foundational kind of I can hang my hat on you know the strength foundation, and then obviously you develop a person's um, strengths and weaknesses, and you know according to you know what you see when you uh, you do benchmark, then you do your assessments. So um, I think that's probably it in a in a shortened format. I don't know if you want any. Uh, you want me to expand any further? No, I, th- I think you've summed it up well, and 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 you my my previous point you described a lot better in terms of the, the you know polarized way the, the nature of the industry, um, and and yeah, I think uh, it, you make a lot of sense. Obviously, the strength foundation, and then on top of that, or even more advanced, look at the individual and what they need, and then that specific strength, where it's you know max strength, rate force development, you know power, whatever it is. Um, that's that's what you train, but obviously strength underpins everything. Um, and, and yeah, I genuinely, I genuinely do believe that, Jamie. And I mean, I think that was one of the things that was really I got uh, nicely exposed to um, 
and I'm not sponsored to plug these guys, but um, I went to Altis in uh, Arizona last last November out in um, in Arizona, and I got exposed, luckily, to um, some professional development there with uh, Dan Path and, and Stu McMillan leading a like really interesting program down there from a track and field perspective mainly, but, you know, Dan is kind of the Yoda of, of kind of athlete preparation. And just one thing ran true about, you know, that, that training gap and identifying you know, work your strengths, but also identify your weaknesses, and obviously try to try to get them up up to the the same level as your strengths. And I think that's that is the strength foundation plus obviously individual assessments and trying to you know obviously maximise every single person's individualisation. And it's difficult under the constraints of team sport, of finance, of you know t- you know genuine time constraints. There's lots of different challenges in, in every single sport, but at least if you have that core philosophy. And let's be honest, everybody's philosophy should, to some degree, evolve with the current state of the industry. But I think it's a difficult situation that you find yourself in when one day, and it's only because his name's on the tip of my tongue, one day the Franz Bosch stuff is all the rage and the next it's standing on a BOSU ball, you know, scratching your ear and um, trying to kick the ball with the other with the opposite foot. It's kind of like, obviously that's an extreme example and none of us are going to take that too seriously, but... The reality is, if you don't have a, if you don't stand for a core foundation, you can easily get swayed by the kind of latest trends. And both of us know that there's there's noise on the internet, and there's obviously a filter that you need to kind of. I've integrated lots of Franz's work, incidentally, into my kind of current thinking and my current programming. But I haven't swung exclusively one way or the other. Is the point I'm really trying to make? Yeah, and I think it's um it's something that I think a lot of maybe young coaches fall into that trap of. Wow, this is getting amazing press attention. Let's throw all my eggs into that basket without kind of having that robust philosophy that the, you know they can they can stand by for the most part. I think um, not wanting to again quote sort of the Stu McMillan of this world, who's obviously highly respected, but I think it's seventy-five percent of the program he knows what works. Twenty percent of the program he's pretty sure, but you know, is it's there some wriggle room there to do something a little bit more innovative? And 5% is, right, let's go gut feel and let's do something outrageous that might be like the game breaker. And I think that's that's the kind of thing that really helped validate my own personal philosophy when I did go and spend some time there. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable that 75% of what I program will be effective for a lot of good quality athletes across whatever sport. And then you've obviously got your 20% and your 5% where you can, you know, you can essentially, you know, not gamble with an athlete's career, but try to really like push the boundaries. And I think that's one thing that us as practitioners have got to do as well. I think if nobody's if nobody's getting injured in your program, I genuinely think that you might not be pushing the boundaries of, of possibility. And I think that's the kind of same sort of thing that sort of the Tim Gabbards of this world all kind of advocate as well. It's like, why don't we push for limit potential rather than stay within the limits, if you if you know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. And you touched on something there and, and it was going to be one of my questions is kind of advice for, you know, upcoming strength coaches in the industry and uh, something like as kind of human nature, we always want to see the next big thing or, you know, a, a, another advantage we can have in our, in our program. Um, but then the problem is if you, you know, completely change your philosophy overnight, you go to a CPD or a conference or something like that and completely change like you said you've got to have your philosophy down and then like that 20 or five percent you can you know adjust then and see what works for your your athletes and what doesn't and and then hopefully improve that that 75 percent of your philosophy over time 
Absolutely. I think that's the one thing that, yeah, I mean, that would be certainly some advice that I'd give. And one of the things that I try and, you know, talk to young coaches about in the position I'm in now and when we've had sort of interaction with um, interns in the in the past roles that I've also, also had, is you ask that question, you know, do you have a philosophy? And it's important that, you know, you ask the question quite early on to, you know, raise awareness that, you know, there's definitely no issue. And obviously I'd like to think that, from my point of view, being in the industry for this long, that I've got a I've got a growth mindset, and I'm open to new ideas, and I'm open to kind of challenge, and open to criticism. That's part of kind of evolving and and being a good practitioner. But I think if, ask ask an intern or ask a young coach, you know, what is your philosophy? Do you have a philosophy? And if they don't have a philosophy, you can then start to you know have these conversations and go, well, if you don't have a philosophy, then you know where are you where are you headed with your your program design, where you're headed with, you know, how you deal with athletes face-to-face and, you know, all of those kind of questions that need to be answered for you to, you know, successfully interact and, you know, successfully ultimately get results with, with the athlete population that you're working with. Yeah, definitely. Um, so g- looking back at, at rugby um, and, you know, have, having spent a lot of time working as an SNC in rugby and now now you're in cricket looking sort of, looking back into rugby what do you think rugby can improve or should improve in terms of s and c um you know i think just re- reflecting on my own personal career and how i kind of developed and how i kind of see see it evolving from the more peripheral point now i think um a lot of people have strengths and a lot of people have strengths in sort of the, the gym based prescription and being comfortable in that sort of environment I know my own personal kind of development would certainly be more on, um, you know, the blend of gym-based physical development and field-based physical development. And I think, again, you know, it's the kind of lots of media attention about, you know, the All Blacks put skills before strength and, you know, the gym's not, you know, a couple of well-known ex-players that are, there's too much reliance on the gym-based prescription in our kind of current Northern Hemisphere culture. And I think that's the one thing that I certainly think that even, you know, I try to blend, you know, the strength foundation with the speed stimulus, with the high quality um, energy system work. I mean, I think that was that was one of the things that I tried to learn um, off other practitioners at the time when I was in the in the Cardiff Blues environment, for example. I wanted to know what the Leinster guys were doing because at the time Leinster were in that kind of pomp of winning two or three Heineken Cups over a three or four year period. Um, I obviously wanted to know that you know you've obviously got exposure there now to to Dan and he was uh, an excellent SNC coach and that learning experience for me was the the sort of the ultimate right. I want to work on some high quality um, you know high speed running elements. I want to work on some uh, obviously that speed stimulus because a lot of actual rugby training doesn't maybe um, give you the right sort of stimulus when it comes to to those high those high threshold, those high quality, um, you know, trading exposures for, for what I call the sort of most important physical qualities, the speeds, the strengths, the powers. I think they're, they're the kind of qualities that are going to differentiate a team against um, the sort of the sub-elite, as they say, in Australia. And um, I think that's the kind of, um, the kind of thing that I would, I would see now looking into um, to other environments would be areas to sort of blend that, you know, gym-based stuff with the field-based prescription and try and get that balance um, maybe more in favour of, of some field-based work and, you know, the, the strongman type stuff that I was quite a big fan of at, at times in my uh, 
in my sort of rugby S&C career and there's times when it was much more kind of gym-based prescription and the velocity-based, um, you know, power and strength development work through tendos and gym awares and the, the things now that are, like you say, commonplace in on the Twitterverse and, you know, main, mainstream. I think um, exposure to that quite early on in my career gave me that better understanding of, you know, the differentiator between the speed strength qualities, the strength speed qualities. And, and obviously having objective measures for athletes can be a great kind of competitive environment to, to build gym culture. So I think that um, that sort of thing's here to stay. And I think that sort of thing's here to be, to be encouraged. And I know that, you know, whenever I wanted to do some sort of high quality speed work, I tried to integrate the speed gate so that every athlete or every player had had numbers and then those numbers are meaningful and those numbers will obviously ultimately create better outputs when you've got players being competitive with themselves but also competitive against their peers. Nobody wants to be the slowest in the, you know, the three times twenty time trial. So it's kind of blending all of those things into into the programming so that you get you get good quality outputs by the by the players and the athletes because you know you, none of them want to get exposed as kind of um you know not putting in 100 percent. yeah com- competition's great you, you just see when you put a jump mat in the middle of the gym and get all the guys to do their cmj and you know the the environment is just it's just lifted another 10 20 percent um just because that competition um and it's something that's great to be a part of now um you you kind of touched on it again you, you must know all my questions already but anyway um you, you're talking a bit about kind of getting the sort of transfer from the gym to the pitch. Um, now, what what would you tell a, a you know maybe a young coach who, who's looking to get more transfer on you know out of the work he does in the gym onto the pitch? I mean, you touched on a few things uh, there previously, but could you uh, open up a bit more on that? Um, yeah, I mean, just just from my, I think a few a few kind of um, companies are starting to sort of look at this from an analytical standpoint. Um, if you think about the breakdown of things like um, the scrummage, you know, line-out lifting, I think a lot of people in the gym, I just think you, I like to ask some sort of some more difficult questions when it comes to sort of program design for a young coach because if you think about, I don't know, forward, forward scrum practice, 30 scrums, um, essentially in a, in a squat mechanics type of, type of situation, um, multi uh, front row forwards, multiple lifts in in a lineout session, maybe maybe or twenty to thirty push presses, for example. So for so for me, it's about looking outside of that and going, okay, well they've squatted already today, they've um, they've push pressed already today. So am I then going to prescribe push press and squat in their in their main kind of um, strength session for this phase, or is there a more intelligent way about getting kind of physical gains out of, you know, prescribing different exercises and, and the sort of rationale why. I mean, those are the sort of questions that I'd like to ask young coaches and think, okay, well, that that heavy loading that they've, obviously forwards may be different to backs because the backs are likely to do more high-speed running and more more kind of technically speed stimulus type work in their field sessions. So it's just about kind of asking questions to try and build kind of good sequencing of, of program design and good sequence of session of session planning so that essentially guys aren't basically push pressing four days a week and then asking them why they've got shoulder issues or, you know, why they've got knee issues because essentially they've squatted four times a week without really seeing that bigger picture of kind of the tactical, technical components and also, you know, what demands are being placed on the players through 
their rugby training as well as their gym-based or their field-based kind of strength and conditioning. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely good advice for a young coach to actually take account of what's going on in those rugby sessions. Um, you can't you can't just solely look at your your gym work. You've got to take everything into account because um, ultimately the whole package is what drives the game performance, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I've learned as I've got older and more experience as a coach. Like I think I just said uh, a while back, the realities of the X's and O's of kind of a strength program. You know, you've got a, you've got a template that you think is yeah, this is a, it's not a one size fits all, but it's a good bang for your buck, high quality strength program. But the reality is, you've also got to look. I think as a as a sort of more experienced coach at the much much bigger picture, which is the whole, and the whole is not just physical preparation it's tactical and technical preparation it's psychological it's lifestyle it's um culture it's all of those things that um that make up optimal performance and i think as a as a coach who obviously you know gets promoted and you know gets a little bit more seniority you do look at the bigger picture i mean as i've got older as a coach i've thought much more about nutrition i've thought much more about lifestyle those things are much more impactful for me on performance than sometimes oh yeah three sets of three or five sets of three which is going to be more optimal for the player i think those kind of little details start to become less and less relevant and more and more relevant is that bigger picture sort of thought process and hopefully that uh that's some lessons that uh you know younger coaches can sort of take away and and think more carefully about yeah for sure now uh this is a question we ask uh, to all our guests on the podcast uh what do you think is the biggest mistake rugby players make when it comes to snc um yeah big one big one um i think from my experience um not taking their recovery as seriously or not valuing it as, as much as they think they might so what i mean by that to qualify would be um you know diligence after the game i know that there's there's nutritional elements there's obviously lots of different recovery methodologies that can be employed but for me, it's and I see it. Um, I don't want to get anyone in trouble at the Northampton Saints, and I certainly won't name names. But um, I see players um, training on their days off regularly, even if it's just you know chest and arms, beach weights, whatever it might be. I think that accumulated fatigue that obviously is a huge, huge factor in a in a long, long competitive, arduous season for a professional player. I think they've really got to take their recovery. Um, seriously and i'm not saying do nothing on a day off because i i'm a massive fan of mobility and active recovery and you know making sure that your body moves as efficiently as possible but the reality is if you're not if you're doing extra weights on your day off then something's not quite right with the prescription that you've been um that you've been given at your club because for me i don't want players training on their days off because that's you know defeating your the purpose of a day off in my in my view yeah and uh, just for you know, some of our uh, listeners and members back home, what what would be good, a good way to spend that that day off if, if they still want to do something? You mentioned a couple there before. Um, for me, I think it's you know active recovery is a big one for me. I think um, you know even if it's a twenty or thirty minute um, mobility session, there's always you know we we both know that to move efficiently, you need mobility in your ankle, hip, and thoracic spine. If you, I mean, I've got a couple of little sequences that I put together for, for our playing group so that if they want to go to the gym for 20 minutes, half an hour, then there's sort of a, a purposeful half an hour in there. I mean, obviously things like 
you know, your, your pool recoveries. Um, I'm a big fan of hot, cold contrast therapy. Um, you know, even things like having a magnesium salts bath, little things that kind of continually help you as an athlete perform optimally come, come your sort of game exposure. I mean, I mean, you don't have to leave the house to have a magnesium bath, obviously. But the reality is you can always, on your day off, you can do something productive that's going to help your performance. You don't have to go to the gym and, you know, eat into, eat into that day with, you know, a chest and arms workout. And, um, yeah, I just think, uh, yeah, just being, being almost, you know, be proactive but not necessarily um, destructive to the overall program design and, and like, what the, what the club's developed for you. Yeah. I think they've got the best interest at heart for that player's personal development and, and recovery days are important and decompression away from sport is very important. But uh, I still think as an athlete, you've got sort of responsibility to, you know, be in as best condition as you can possibly be. And so helping yourself with half an hour or, or an, an hour's worth of um, proactive recovery is, uh, is going to be helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, just last season, conscious of time, Chris. Um, where can people learn a bit more about you? Um, I have a Twitter account. I'm Chris Toom seventy one, very original, at um, at uh, Twitter, and I'm I think I'm Chris Toom seventy one uh, on Instagram as well. I do try to use social media for you know positive you know positive reasons. For me, it's about learning and sharing good information. Um, You've obviously got coaches that you can interact with, and I'd like to think that over the years I've I've built quite a nice little um, professional network that reaches, you know, from Australia to, you know, far shores of um, North America. And yeah, Instagram, I just I do tend to just chuck a bit of um, a bit of stuff on there with regards to um, you know exercises and a few little tips. But um, yeah, it's not necessarily the best uh, portal for for strength and conditioning only content. So uh, yeah, Twitter is probably the best one for me. Yeah, and of course we'll share um, share links to both of those in the show notes. But uh, Chris, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. Um, great insight into your career, and you know, loads of take homes for upcoming strength coaches and you know, training information for players as well. So thank you very much. Thank you, Jamie. Really appreciate it, and um, yeah, I'll look forward to uh, the feedback uh, as and when it comes in. Cheers, Thanks very much. Cheers. So there you go. I think you'll agree, you know, definitely a great podcast, loads of great insights from a very experienced strength and conditioning coach, especially like what Chris said about the strength foundation uh, and how important it is. You get that right first and, and other physical qualities, you know, will improve and you've got a great base to improve them as well. Um, so loads of take homes for, you know, athletes or up and coming strength and conditioning coaches. So we'd like to thank Chris for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, in the meantime, at rugbyrenegade.com, loads of uh, articles coming out. There'll be more podcasts, of course. We've just released a new ebook called Bigger for Rugby, which is a must-read if you want to increase your muscle mass and improve performance for rugby. Uh, it's a great program. It'll be a lot of fun to to do, and you'll get great results and put on some lean muscle mass too. So check that out. And, of course, uh, keep up to date with the podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, and give us a five-star review. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Renegade Podcast. For more quality rugby strength and conditioning information, check us out at rugbyrenegade.com. Rugby Renegade, building machines.